Q&A on guidance updates and other topics for nursing homes. A conversation with the healthcare experts at Quality Insights. Good afternoon and welcome to our series of webinars focused on bringing you information about COVID-19 related topics. The information in these weekly webinars is geared toward long-term care and skilled nursing facilities, but we encourage everyone who's interested to attend. My name is Kathy Caudill. I'm a communications specialist with Quality Insights. Today, we'll be having a Q&A on recent regulation updates, plus other topics related to long-term care facilities. And now I'd like to briefly introduce today's panelists. We have several of our quality improvement specialists here today. We have Deborah Wright, Penny Imes, Shirley Sullivan, and Christopher Henry. We're also joined by our infection preventionist, Jennifer Brown, and Quality Insights Medical Director, Dr. Jean Storm. And before we get started on this week's questions, Deborah Wright is going to talk briefly about QCEP and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services training modules. Hi, thanks, Kathy. So we just wanted to take a moment because we know that um, a lot of us have been talking over the last couple months, it seems like the last year, about um, the CMS training modules for targeted COVID-19 training for frontline staff and management staff. And um, we know that a lot of you said, you know, some of those modules were outdated. And we just wanted to draw to your attention that at the end of May, those modules have been updated and they are, um, they're actually really good. And they have made those updates in a number of the modules to where we are right now with um, treating and working with, with COVID. So even if you're not a facility that is having all of your staff um, go through those modules, it may be something good to have your infection control or staff development um, nurse watch those modules so that you can um, incorporate that into your infection control and COVID-related training. So we'll have more on that um, in the future, especially if you're a facility that is utilizing the QCEP modules for those trainings so that we can help you work through that. And certainly if you have any questions, you can always reach out to any of us and, and we'll be happy to help you with that. Okay, thank you, Deb. So our first question that we had submitted in advance um, what is the new definition of up-to-date for COVID vaccinations? Sure. So um, everyone that's aged six years and older at this point um, is eligible for the bivalent Pfizer or Moderna COVID vaccine Um also, anyone over age 65 years of older may get a second dose of the bivalent Pfizer or Moderna, but that's not necessary to be considered up to date per the definition. And that's something uh, for that second bivalent booster, you would want to talk to your physician or the resident's primary care provider. Our next question is, can you explain why the NHSN definition of being up to date on COVID vaccines is different than this new definition? being used by the CDC and state health departments? Sure. So unfortunately, um, the timing of all this is not in your benefit. So as we, we know, NHSN reporting, they changed their reporting guidelines on a quarterly basis. So since CDC changed the definition of up-to-date early in the NHSN's quarter, um, unfortunately, we need to wait until June 25th for NHSN to catch up with that new definition. So technically, you could have someone that is up to date in your facility per the new CDC definition, but in NHSN, unfortunately, you're not going to be able to capture that because you still have to 
look at their primary series first. So uh, with NHSN, you have to answer the question, have they had their primary? If they've had their primary, then you go down through the additional boosters. And from that, are they up to date? So it is very confusing at this point. We have another month and a half um, to to deal with those two different definitions. And um, certainly if anyone has any particular questions, we can we can look through specific situations then. Um, oh, I also wanted to say, uh, Kathy, I'm sorry that NHSN does have um, training scheduled for those changes in HSN. They've they've posted them and um, they're at the beginning of June. So if if you haven't signed up for those already, um, look at your NHSN emails and make sure that you get signed up for one of those trainings. Great, thank you. Our next question is, um, how long are nursing homes going to be required to offer residents and staff the COVID vaccine as well as educate them on the vaccine? I'll take that question, thanks. Um, so far, unless there's any other further uh, kind of regulatory action, um, the end date of the uh, to stop offering vaccines to staff and residents is May 21st of 2024. Um, but of course, the best defense for that is to keep people up to date with the bivalent vaccines. And are nursing homes still required to check temperatures or screen people as they're entering the building? Uh, the required pre-screenings uh, is no longer required. Um, instead, uh, signage is to be posted at all the doors. Uh, they recommend in dining rooms and uh, major uh, areas where everybody congregates. And they do suggest a date on those so that they know it's the most up-to-date information. Um, but all people should uh, entering should have a sign that says if they've tested positive or had close contact with someone within the last 10 days that has been positive, or if they're having any symptoms um, that they should not be entering the building. And if a resident is out more than 24 hours, uh, you need to do your facility screening policy as they are a new admission. With all that being said, it's important to review your screening of visitors uh, and new admissions policy to make sure you're up to date with what um, it is that you're actually following. If your policy is more stringent than the current guidance, then you will be held to what your policy says. Thank you. We have a couple of questions about an enhanced barrier precautions. Um, if a resident has a skin tear, but is not known to be colonized by an MDRO, should staff use enhanced barrier precautions while caring for the resident? And if not, what type of precautions should the staff use? Sure, I can answer this question. So if a skin, care can, a skin tear can be covered by a Band-Aid or a similar dressing, then the resident is not going to be required to have enhanced barrier precautions. Enhanced barrier precautions or EBP should be utilized if the resident has chronic wounds. So a pressure ulcer, a diabetic foot ulcer, an unhealed surgical wound, or chronic venous stasis ulcers. So with every resident, we want to just to make sure that we are stressing standard precautions utilized during resident care. Standard precautions should be utilized uh, unless enhanced barrier precautions or other precautions are going to, going to apply. For this resident, we would not be using enhanced barrier precautions. And another enhanced barrier precaution question, it says, if staff is using enhanced barrier precautions or contact precautions during resident care, should linens, gowns, and gloves be treated as biohazards? 
So we've been getting a lot, I've been getting a lot of questions about what constitutes a biohazard and should the, those gowns and, and gloves and linens, if we're utilizing enhanced barrier precautions for a resident, if those gowns and gloves and linens um, should be used, treated as a biohazard. So always, you should always refer to your local and state regulations regarding disposal of medical waste. You can never go wrong when you do that. But according to the CDC, unless the garbage and linen contains regulated waste. So that's what they they use that term regulated waste. And it's defined by OSHA as um, containing a um, semi-liquid or liquid blood or other potentially infectious materials. They define that as OPIM. So these are contaminated items that would release blood or an infectious material in a liquid or a semi-liquid state if compressed, items that are caked with dried blood or in infectious material and are capable of releasing these materials during handling, uh, any contaminated sharps, obviously, any pathological and microbiological waste containing blood or a potentially infectious material. If the linen or gown contains any regulated waste as defined by OSHA, then the waste should be disposed of as a biohazard and treated as such. So if the linen or gown or anything that you're going to throw away does not have any regulated waste on it, then it just can be disposed of in the residence room in a container. Um, but otherwise, it should be treated as a biohazard. And you can look at the definition of regulated waste on the CDC site. Um, OSHA also um, has a really good definition. If you want to, if you're not sure, you take a look at, at the OSHA uh, website. Otherwise, typically, if you're not going to have a, a medical waste that is contaminated as with regular regulated waste, then you, know, you can just dispose of it as stuff such. And it doesn't matter if we're doing contact precautions or standard precautions or enhanced barrier precautions. If we have regulated waste on whatever we're throwing away, then it needs to be treated as a biohazard. Next question. Uh, now that the public health emergency has ended, can the FDA's emergency use authorizations or EUAs continue? Yes, I, I'll take that. So yes, the FDA's um, emergency use authorizations for COVID-19 products like uh, tests and vaccines and treatments will not be affected with the ending of the public health emergency. And uh, the FDA's ability to authorize new EUAs uh, also moving forward is not affected. Thank you, Shirley. Mm -hmm. Next question. Can the Janssen COVID-19 vaccine still be given? And the answer to that is no. Um, the J&J vaccine uh, should no longer be used. Um, uh, the FDA did remove guidance um, you know, for the use of that, and uh, the government stock actually expired on May 7th. So, um, Moving forward, all, you know, all stocks should be disposed of, and uh, the J and J can no longer be used in the United States. And then, and then, um, and just as a reminder, um, you know, to be up to date, if you did have the J and J, you have to get either the Moderna or Pfizer mRNA vaccine two months after uh, the J and J vaccine. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So our next question is circling back to the one that we found in the chat earlier. 
is it still required to screen residents daily for COVID-19 symptoms? Uh, so while earlier versions of the interim infection prevention and control recommendations for healthcare settings did recommend that, you know, residents be actively monitored upon admission at least once a day for fever and symptoms, um, that guidance is no longer in place. We had a uh, question about that last week, and I wanted to make sure we we answered that. Um, however, some facilities may have that language still in your COVID-19 medication plan and your policies. So just double check um, your policies if you're going to change that um, recommendation and um, you know, make sure that your current policy reflects the practice that you're doing. Thank you. So one nursing home asked, could you discuss the CMS memo related to CLIA, QSO2315 CLIA? There is a section about point of care antigen test. They wrote, my interpretation is the POC antigen tests cannot be used on asymptomatic individuals as this alters its IFU. Does that mean we can't use the rapid test on an asymptomatic person who was exposed to COVID? Okay, so about the QSO. So on May 11th, a document uh, called QSO 2315 CLIA was released and it discussed how laboratories should handle testing considerations after the pandemic ends. So during the pandemic, certain CLIA regulations were not enforced by CMS. Um, as long as specific guidelines were followed. Uh, policies and procedures were also relaxed or changed to you know, make it more flexible within the CLEO regulations. However, with the end of the pandemic, some of these relaxed policies have been terminated. And although a lot of the memo talks about larger labs that perform high complexity laboratory testing, there are some highlights that might be helpful for the long-term care setting. Um, and one change is that reporting of these SARS-CoV-2 test results under CLIA regulations are no longer required. However, there may be reporting requirements at the state or local level. Additionally, the end of the pandemic does not mean that the antigen tests cannot be used on asymptomatic individuals. Um, the FDA has authorized numerous antigen and molecular tests, as well as over-the-counter tests for, that were intended to use for asymptomatic individuals. So the facilities must follow the manufacturer's instructions for use or the IFU, um, including the intended use for COVID as well under the CLIA regulations. And I'm gonna drop a link in the chat so you can check what, um, you know, what tests you have and see if it's still authorized and you can download a copy of the IFU to check to see if asymptomatic uh, individuals can be tested with that test. Thank you, Jen. Our next question, uh, can nursing homes use the amount of emissions with COVID in a local hospital for a metric to replace the transmission levels? Yeah, I know we had talked about this a little bit on our call last week with, you know, those county transmission level rates going away. And Kathy, do you have that CDC link 
Yes, I do. If you want to throw that, uh, Kathy will put that into the chat. There is a CDC um, webpage now that gives the interim guidance for moving forward with the PHE ending and you know how to address COVID. It's a great website. There are community COVID-19 community uh, levels, hospital levels that are tracked. And this the website that she put up will take you to that. Um, tracker. And that might actually, you know, looking at those COVID-19 community levels that tracks by county. So that might actually give you a better picture. And I actually went on to the website, pulled up some surrounding counties just to try it out and see what it's like. And it's it's very nice. And it gives you, you know, that hospital transmission level. So that will probably be one thing that would really help nursing homes know you know, where their levels might be and, and whether they're high, low, whatever. And then that whole web page is really good for some interim guidance and some requirements and things that you want to read through and maybe put into place. Thank you. So this is our last question. It says, is there a PA HAN, which is Pennsylvania Health Alert Network memo, to uh, cover infection control questions for the PHE ending? Yeah, and this also came up. We talked about this last week. Somebody said, do we have our PA Han yet? And I said, they usually will gather all the information, put it out there. And lo and behold, on 511, PA Han 64. Was it 60? I got to look at my writing. 694. Sorry about that. Can't read my own writing. It was released. And again, that that actually the PA Han has that link to that CD tracker that I was talking about. But it does give you the information um, to cover some of the infection control questions really specifically for Pennsylvania. Um, There's a description of implications for that CDC community transmission metric ending. There are some updated recommendations for your universal source control and your admission testing. And then they have a nice appendix in there that they added uh, to assist facilities to implement that broader use of source control. So um, PA Han 694, a released 511, definitely wanna make sure that you have that and that will help you to update, really look at updating um, your policies and procedures with that. All right, thank you, Penny. Looks like we have a question here. It says, is it still recommended that unvaccinated or not up-to-date staff and residents use source control, even if universal masking is not in effect? I have to take that one. Um, So while there's no official recommendation that they have to wear a mask, there's no differentiation between unvaccinated or vaccinated staff with regards to source control. However, you know, there is a recommendation that you have something to sort of keep track of your unvaccinated staff. So that could be masking, that could be, you know, whatever you choose in your policy to, uh, it could be a self-screening or a screening at, you know, the start of the day, whatever the case may be, but there has to be something to, you know, keep track of those unvaccinated staff and their symptoms, um, you know, even if the levels are low. 
but there's no mandate for masks. It's not any different for vaccinated or unvaccinated. All right, thank you, Jennifer. And that's all the question we have so far. So we'll take a moment if the panelists here have anything else they wanted to add, uh, now would be a good time. I think I'll just um, expand upon Jennifer's um, discussion regarding screening residents for COVID-19. So even though it's not um, required to do that screening, we are seeing a high number of facilities being cited for um, not testing residents that display symptoms. So if you're seeing a change in residence condition and you are doing your assessment and you're documenting symptoms that you maybe would have been identifying during, with your COVID screening, you want to make sure that you're still testing them and screening them for COVID and following precautions until you have that, that test back. Some of those tests are resulting in, in negative, some are resulting in positive. You know, it's not a problem till it's a problem. So just make sure that um, if your residents are displaying symptoms and you're doing that assessment, that you're following through with um, testing them for COVID or screening them for COVID as well. And thanks for pointing that out, Deb. I wanted to add too, we, we, we might expect to see a few more of the F880 and 887 um, tags, maybe some deficiencies. So it's it's really important to continue to look at, you know, that's kind of along those lines too, of even answering that question, like with the source control, I mean, it's going back to let's continue to use our, our common sense infection control practices. If somebody seems to have something going on, you know, then, then, think about some kind of source control. So if somebody has cold symptoms, what's a resident staff um, visitor, just that basic um, infection control, uh, because I know looking at your infection control programs, what you have in place, your policies and pre procedures, that is something that, that you is going to be looked at over, over the next year closely. So you want to make sure that you have all that in place. Thank you, Penny. So we just got another question in the Q&A. They ask, we do ask if new hires are vaccinated. However, we are not asking anyone to test unless they are symptomatic. I'm keeping track of unvaccinated employees in an Excel spreadsheet. Should we be testing unvaccinated employees? I only read that is facility decision based on COVID rates. Yeah, that's correct. Um, you know, unvaccinated, whether they're unvaccinated or not, routine testing is not recommended. Uh, but of course, you know, as Penny and Deb mentioned, if anybody's showing symptoms, you should, you know, follow the proper protocols. But um, routine testing is not a recommendation at this time. Thank you for your question. And the person in the Q&A said thank you too. And I think that's it for questions for today. So I think I can wrap us up. I'd like to thank all of our panelists for joining us today. And I'd like to thank all of you for joining us today and hope you can come back and join us again next week. You can check out our other interviews at qualityinsights.org slash QIN slash multimedia 